Sunday morning. Now, if you've been with us so far as we've journeyed through Genesis, and we're coming up on about a year that we've been in this book, close to it, but in light of the context and Abraham's faith journey, and we have seen some extraordinary works of God in the life of Abraham, have we not, in these chapters? And considering everything that we've seen God do in the life of Abraham, I have to be honest, Genesis 20 has to be one of the most exasperating and perplexing passages in all of Genesis, if not in Scripture. And to sort of kind of help you know where I'm coming from and why I would say that, um, I went and consulted my friend Pete Butler to help me come up with an analogy because Pete is an expert on all things cycling. So, so anyway, if you don't like this illustration, you can text Pete after this is over. But anyway, so in the Tour de France, which is raced every summer across Europe, mainly France, but other parts of Europe as well, it's 21 stages. And you win by a cumulative time. So you, person with the least amount of time, um, the lowest amount of time by the end of the race is the winner. And there's 21 legs with the last leg, the last stage of the race, is run through the streets of Paris. And what's interesting about this last stage is that because this is a flat stage, it's through some city streets and those sort of things, it's not really a stage where you can make a move, so to speak, in terms of making up a lot of lost time. So what's happened traditionally, historically, is that the 21st stage has been turned into something kind of ceremonial. It's, it's just, it's it's almost a fait accompli. In other words, whoever the, the leader is at the end of stage 20 is going to be the winner of stage 21. There's kind of this gentleman's agreement that, that no one's really racing. They're just sort of celebrating. And that's why oftentimes you'll see these, these bikers riding through Paris with little you know, glasses of champagne and they're shaking hands and they're patting each other on the back and they're, and they're, and they're sort of having a good time together. Because it's just assumed whoever the winner was, or the leader was after stage 20, he is going to be the winner at the end of the race. All he has to do, <laughs> just stay on his bike, right? Just cross the finish line. Just don't do anything rash or stupid. But imagine you're watching that race this summer, and halfway through the last stage, maybe the leader is, is goofing off, or maybe he's trying to take a selfie while he's on his bike, or maybe he's watching the U.S. Open on his iPhone, or, you know, maybe he has too much champagne, okay, in his journey, and he inexplicably falls off his bike. He hurts himself. His bike is irreparably damaged. He can't finish the race. I mean, we can't even fathom such a thing, right? All that work, all that effort to, to sort of blow it at the very end, to use a term from the Princess Bride, that would be what? Inconceivable, right? And that's what we have here. We have, spiritually speaking, an inconceivable turn of events. We have a chain reaction of sin on Abraham's part that threatens everything. Abraham can see the finish line. Abraham has been given the promises of God. Abraham has just come off a time where he has dined with God. The only time in the Old Testament that God ever sits down and has a meal with someone. Abraham is God's friend, and Abraham feels so emboldened by this friendship with God that he 
begs God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He and God are on the most intimate of terms, and we see God walking away. He gives Abraham this promise. Abraham, your wife Sarah is going to conceive within the year. The promised child, my, my pledge to you is unconditional. He can see the finish line. And then Genesis 20. What we're going to see in this passage, there are, there are three players, so to speak, and all of them are wrestling with this sin that's come on the stage in different ways. So first we're going to look at Abraham, who's sort of engulfed in sin. We're going to look at Sarah, who has sort of bystander or victimized by this sin. And finally, we're going to look at Abimelech who doesn't know what's going on. He is completely blindsided by sin. Now, as we look at these portraits and ask, what can we see in them of ourselves? Because remember, Moses is not giving us a detached biographical lesson. Moses is giving us a mirror. Moses is wanting for us to see ourselves in this story. He doesn't want us to stand in judgment here 6,000 years later and sort of scoff at these characters for their silliness and for their foolables and their mistakes and how could they be so naive and we're so much smarter and sophisticated and progressive. No, no, no. Moses wants us to see ourselves in this text. And as we do, what we're going to see is that the most important person in this text is not one of these three characters. The most important person in this text is God, because we are going to see God's grace all over this story. And my hope and prayer for you is that as you see yourself in this text, that you will see God's grace in your story as well. So we've entitled this one, we went back to elementary school to learn our mathematics, God's grace there it is, greater than sign. Okay, all our sins. Okay, God's grace greater than all our sins. So first, let's look at Abraham. As I said before, the last time we saw Abraham, he was on the spiritual high, right? He just got back from the high school retreat, the Passion Conference. He is, he is riding high. He's committed to having his quiet time every day. He's, you know, he's made all those sorts of resolutions He sees the finish line, the end of stage 21 of the tour, and then this. You know, this story is so similar to Genesis 12. Remember what happened in Genesis 12? This is a replay of what happened in Genesis 12 20 years ago. Remember Abraham, Sarah, at the beginning of Abraham's sojourning? And they go down to Egypt, and the same thing happens. They, he tells Sarah to lie on his behalf, and Sarah's taken into Pharaoh's harem and, you know, puts the whole project of redemption at risk, and God has to bail him out. And so some have said, surely this is just a different rendition of the same story. This is just kind of the details. This is kind of a later editor came back in and has heard of this. And, and, and it's, it's not, by the way. And don't have time to get into all those historical redemptive reasons, but it's very clear this is a completely separate incident, different purpose of the passage, different characters, the whole stage. But the reason that we want to say that Genesis 20 is just a recapitulation of Genesis 12 is that, once again, it's inconceivable to us that Abraham could do this again. Abraham, do you not learn anything did, you've been in Sarah's doghouse for 20 years. 
right, for leaving her in Egypt, and you're going right back to it, buddy. What, have you not learned anything? What is happening? I mean, you know, Sarah, Abraham is using Sarah like, like, like some of our nerds in here use wrist pieces in a board game, right? They're just moving them around, just this plan. It's just, it has no regard for what's happening, which is completely understandable. There's three things I want you to, to, to consider, though. And there's three things about Abraham's situation that we can learn something from. And you've heard me say similar things before, but let me try to package them up in a different way. Remember, it's been many years since this previous incident. And this is a reminder to us that God's grace to Abraham 20 years ago doesn't exempt Abraham from needing God's grace today. It doesn't exempt you and me from needing God's grace today. See, we have to remember that, that faith is not static. It's not, a, it's not a one time for all thing. It is certainly true we place our faith in Christ and he has delivered us over from sin. He justifies us by the death of his son. But it's also true that we are told as believers to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to press forward, Paul says. We are to, to be seeking after God. We are to be praying, communing, seeking after him. And, and faith is not like something you put in your gas tank and you just run your car in perpetuity. That's not how it works, folks. It has been some 20-something years, and Abraham's need for the grace of God is just as acute, even in the twilight of his life, as it was at the beginning. Do you know that your need for the grace of God, the mercy of God, the intervening providence of God will always be here? It never changes. In fact, the older you get, the more I believe God will make you aware of how much, just how much you need him and how apart from him you can do nothing. And so this is Abraham's situation is a great reminder of us. A second thing to note about Abraham's situation what Abraham was doing here was just social custom. You see, it was part of ancient Near Eastern culture when you were a king or a patriarch over a piece of territory or land, you had right of first refusal for any woman who came into your territory. And typically what would happen is that the man would, um, the woman would be taken into the harem of the king and the man would be killed. And, and the reason that they entered into this arrangement before they were married is that you don't want to kill the brother of the woman you bring into your harem. You want to woo him. You want to give him favors and those sorts of things. And so in a very real sense, while it's easy for us to criticize Abraham from afar and how could you do such a thing? And Abraham is no family man and all that sort of stuff. Abraham, if he, if he puts his stake in the ground, there is a really... There is a clear and present danger here. In a very real sense, this could mean his life. This could mean the life of Sarah. And again, this is meant to remind us that, that when we're in the middle of these sort of naughty situations, they're always incredibly complex. They're always in, in, incredibly detailed. They're it takes an inordinate amount of faith and wisdom to navigate these sort of complexities, and Abraham's dealing with that. And third and lastly, and you've heard me say this many times before, indwelling sin 
Four Oaks is going to be with you and I the rest of our lives. Do you know there is never a point in time where we are healed of our sin? I know that many of you have been delivered over from addictions and habits and, and ongoing sin, and I praise God for that. I praise God for that. But, but, but sin is not like a disease that you take a pill and then you're, you're cured. Indwelling sin is always going to be with us. That's why Peter warns us, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to conquer and devour, be on guard. Remember that we are in a spiritual war. You know, if insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, all of us, on a daily basis, we absolutely lose our minds, don't we? We absolutely lose our minds. You see, even Christians, faithful Christians, God-fearing Christians, sin and sin boldly. That is, that is part of our nature. And, and if we ever forget that we are in great spiritual peril of making catastrophic decisions in our own lives. If you don't believe me, how many of you have kept all of your New Year's resolutions perfectly up to this point? And if you raise your hand, you are lying, okay, right? You are absolutely, no, no. See, Moses, though, and we've, we've hit on this enough for a second. Moses, though, interestingly, doesn't even offer much commentary on this. Because I think it's because he doesn't want us to fixate so much on Abraham's failures. Because, for Oaks, the most shocking thing in this is not that Abraham falls off his bike on the way to the finish line. But it's not Abraham's sin, but it's God's spectacular and amazing grace. Look at, to Abraham, look at verse 3. So he's entered this scheme, he's concocted a scheme, and here in verse 3 it says, but God came to Abimelech. Literally could say God initiates, God intervenes, God steps between Abraham and this cliff. And it would have been so easy, right, for God not to have done that. It would have been so easy to say, Abraham, you made your bed lie in it. Abraham, I, 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 you know, I saved your bacon 20 years ago in Egypt. I am not doing it again. Okay? Abraham, you're going to have to fix this on your own. Abraham, I'm certain that there is someone out there who would be a more faithful ambassador than you. Where's Mekilzadek, by the way? Is he, isn't he like in Jerusalem or something? Can't, can't we draft him to kind of sort of take your place? But God doesn't do that. And the reason God doesn't do that is, see, God has made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. And he says, you're my man. And I know you're going to fail. And I know you're going to sin. And I know you're going to sin catastrophically. But my grace is greater than your sin. And you need to know this morning, if you find yourself in a place like Abraham, maybe you are engulfed in sin. Maybe you have just made horrific choices in 2019 that are still haunting you in 2020. Maybe you are in a place where you can't fathom or see your way out of 
the vortex of sin that has sort of sucked you in. You need to be reminded of something, just as Abraham was. God's, do you know this? God's grace is greater than your sin if you're in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean there's not, not consequence for sin. As we've seen in Abraham's life, there's been consequence for sin. It just means, and this is so important for Oaks, sin is not decisive for the follower of Jesus Christ. Grace is decisive. Grace is decisive. God's grace through Jesus Christ. And before some of you, you know, so oftentimes when we are engulfed in sin, we are just strategizing like crazy. How do I get myself out of this? What, 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 what kind of scheme can I concoct to fix the other scheme that I concocted that went so wrong? How can I, how can I fiddle my way out of this? How can I work my way out of this? When maybe, maybe, for some of you this morning, the first thing you need to do is just to be reminded, God's grace is greater than my sin. And praise the Lord that it is. Maybe you need to rest in that. Maybe the first thing you need to do this morning is just run to Christ. Just park yourself right in his presence under his mercy and grace and pray for his presence in your life. And as we're going to see with Abraham, God is not done with Abraham. It's not merely that God kind of raises Abraham back up to the edge of the pit and sets him on ground. We're, we're going to see what God does in the life of Abraham. But the first thing we, we need to see is that if you're engulfed in sin this morning, God's grace is greater than that sin in Jesus Christ. Number two, let's look at Sarah. Sarah victimized by sin or kind of caught up in sin. Now, at first glance, you may be uncomfortable thinking about Sarah as a victim. You may say, well, Pastor Paul, didn't she conspire with Abraham? Didn't she make this foolish oath? Didn't she intend to deceive? Isn't that exactly what happened to her and Abraham last time in Egypt? Didn't Sarah learn her lesson? And again, I want us to understand something about Sarah's impossible situation. And, and I think there's something that we can really learn about this in terms of the vulnerability of women, not just in this culture, in that culture, but in this culture as well. You have to remember that Abraham is Sarah's head. He is her leader. And he has led her, listen, to an impossible situation. I want you to think about how impossible this is. Here she made a, a vow, a covenant to her husband before they were married, before they were Christians, before they knew, before they worshiped the true God. And for her to resist now, almost certainly would have meant the death of her husband, almost certainly would have meant a life for her of slavery and servitude in this man's harem. Let me ask you, what would you do? What would you do? Well, Pastor Paul, I would stand on print. Seriously, what would you do? What would you do? See, sometimes we dive headlong into sin, and we know it's sin. And we volitionally choose it. We aim towards it. We're just like Abraham. We've been down that road over and over again. But sometimes, listen, other people's sins are sort of thrust upon us. Sometimes they just sort of hit us 
out of nowhere. We're, we're, we're caught up in this vortex of sin and difficulty that doesn't seem to be our, all of our own choosing. And all of us, I think, can identify with that. Your spouse has been unfaithful. You were delivered divorce papers. Your, your, your finances have spiraled out of control, and it genuinely, this time, wasn't your fault. It was something that was done to you. There's situations in all of our life where we can think about the fact that, God, it just feels like I've lost agency here. I don't know what to do. If I go to the left, I cuss in the first service. I won't do that again because this is on tape, okay? Darned if I do, okay? Darned if I don't. I don't know which way to go. If I choose this way, that looks like pain and destruction. If I go this way, it looks like pain and destruction. God, what, what do I do? Do you find yourself this morning, folks, any of you, in a similar kind of place? You were just doing your thing. But you get that phone call, you get that email, you get that text. There's, there, there's something that has, has happened sort of outside of your control, but you are greatly impacted from it. What do we learn about Sarah's example? And I'll, I'm going to tell you, this is not a field, this is, this is a hard one. This is a hard one. We see the example of Sarah in that she waits. Now, I want to go back to something that Abimelech says about Sarah in verse 16 to emphasize this. He says, to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Listen, it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. Sarah is never condemned in this passage. But what she is, quote unquote, condemned to do is to wait. You know, this was no quick turnaround, by the way. We know that from this text that God had closed all the wombs of all the women in Abimelech's entourage, his city-state. Certainly this would have been taken some time to notice, would it not? Not just days, not just weeks, maybe months. And as Sarah waited in that place, what she was supposed to do was not immediately clear. And we know that although God shows up and delivers her out of the hand of Abimelech, we know that that probably wasn't the case for the time in Egypt. Remember how we said that she was probably most likely taken as wife, sexual partner by Pharaoh. And so I don't think what we can get from this is that if we wait, God will keep us from physical harm. Or if we wait, if we just wait, God is going to heal that disease in our body. Or he's going to give us that paycheck or he's going to give us that job. Now, sometimes he does do that by his grace. But see, what God has promised to do is what he has done for Sarah here. And that he has preserved her life because he has made a promise to her. He has made a covenant with her that, Sarah, you are going to conceive a son, Isaac. And in order for me to be faithful to my word and to my covenant, to my promises, I'm going to, as you wait, I'm going to show you grace. Now, what does that mean for us as 21st century New Testament believers? What has God promised you? As you wait right now, whatever context that is in your life, what has God 
promised you. He's promised us one, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms belonging to Jesus. What is Jesus's is now yours. Jesus is a son. If you're in, if you're in Christ, you're a son or daughter. Jesus is reigning with God. You too will one day reign with God. Jesus is perfectly sinless and pure. By his righteousness, you are perfectly sinful, sinless and pure. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He has promised eternal life with him. And so as we entrust ourselves, as, as we are this side of heaven and we are waiting, we are like Sarah Life has converged upon us. There's things that have happened that have been out of our control. Other people's sin have impacted us greatly. And we're asking, God, what am I to do? Sometimes, God, or always, God simply says, wait. Doesn't mean that he'll heal every disease, fix every situation. But it does mean that, folks, hear this that he will be faithful to the covenant that he has made with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. There is no sin greater than his righteousness. He loves us. He's laid his son's life down for us. And we have to remind ourselves of these things. Yesterday at the women's brunch, um, they, and men, this is going to be a foreign concept to you, but at, at women's brunches, they give gifts to women on the way out the door. I don't know if they call them party favors or whatever. Men, women, men give each other like little bags of sausage after breakfast, and then we take those home. But th- these little boxes up here, they give all the women these, these little boxes. And the idea is that anytime you feel faith waning in the course of this year, you just open that box, you take out a scripture passage, you take out a quote, you read it, you meditate on it, you, you, you hide it in your heart, you marinate in it, you soak in it, because that's what we must do as the people of God, is that we are waiting, waiting on a heavenly city. And sometimes God delivers us out of the harem in Egypt, and sometimes he doesn't. But our hope is in him, that he will fulfill his faithful covenant promises to us. So here we have Abraham engulfed in sin. We have Sarah victimized by sin. And then, I just feel so, so far sorry for him, and Bimelech, blinded by sin. Let's look at him very quickly. Imagine if you're Abimelech, you're a pagan king, you're following social convention, you're simply doing what is the general practice of the day, and God shows up to you in a dream and says, Abimelech, hey, you don't know me, I don't know you, but let me introduce myself, I'm God, and you're a dead man, right? Now, if you're one of those families that likes to share dreams over the breakfast table, I don't recommend this at all. Nothing good, good, ever, ever can come of sharing dreams, okay, in my opinion, right? But imagine you're Abimelech. What did you dream last night? I dreamed about the camels and the harvest, and, and I dreamed about God. And he says that I am dead, right? You know, th- that's going to be an awkward bre- breakfast conversation. But if you're Abimelech, it's like buying a car on eBay or Craigslist and getting it home and finding out that it's stolen. 
See, just because it's stolen doesn't absolve you of the responsibility. You better return that car or you'll be going to jail. This is the situation Abimelech finds himself in. He is absolutely blindsided by sin. His conscience was clear. In his mind, he had not done anything wrong. He had done nothing foolish. He was simply following the social conventions of the day. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you at all relate to part of Abimelech's story here? You know, you, something has happened. Sin has encroached upon you, not because you planned it or premeditated it or had foresight to it, but maybe you were just absolutely blindsided by it. Maybe it was an impulsive, foolish decision that you didn't know at the time was impulsive or foolish. Maybe you made a decision that was just born out of ignorance, but your conscience was clear. But now, in retrospect, you realize, oh man, if I had only known. If that's the case... Be reminded of a couple things, four oaks. One of us, I mean, some of us, we, we need to understand, this is the condition that we live in all the time as believers. See, we are more vulnerable and fragile than we ever could realize and short-sighted. There are things going on right now in our lives that if God were to show them to us, it would just overwhelm us. It would devastate us. Yet for his grace. You see, the only thing that keeps it all from crashing in all the time is the grace of God, the supernatural intervening grace of God operating in ways that you can't even see, saving us from ourselves, Saving us from others. Saving others from us. And listen to what verse 6 tells us that God says to Abimelech, and I find this incredibly encouraging, incredibly comforting. Look at verse 6. He said, I know you find yourself here, Abimelech, and by no active choice of your own, it's kind of happened to you, but you're still responsible for it. You're still culpable for it. Verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. You hear that? I've been like, I know. (laughs) I, I, I know you didn't consciously choose this. Your conscience was clear. But been like, you need to understand My grace is greater even than your ignorance. My grace is holding all of this together. I think we will get to heaven and we will look back on this life and and we will be stunned at at the way that God's grace is woven into the fabric of everything that we do and everything everything that we are and every relationship that we have. And so what do we do? What do you say, Pastor Paul, that's great, but what do I do? If I find myself in the situation of Abimelech this morning, it's not that I've been engulfed in sin. It's not that I've been victimized by sin. 
I've just been blindsided by it. I'm just, I'm just becoming aware of it in ways I never have before. What do we do? We do what Abimelech does. What does Abimelech do? He repents. He thanks God and he repents. Even though he didn't know that what he was doing was wrong, when it was pointed out to him, he didn't have an argument with God. He, he didn't say, but God, this isn't fair. He said, God, what do I do? He repents and then he does it. Because I think this is very applicable to marriage, by the way. I think we find ourselves in this place in hus- as husbands and wife all the time. And I don't think it just applies to marriage. It applies to all relationships where we might have conflict. But, but hear me on this. See, the scriptures tell us, husbands, live with your wives in a wise and understanding way. And as a husband, you think you are hitting that out of the park, right? You have mastered that verse. Or wives, it says, wives, respect and honor your husband. And wives, you feel like, in good conscience, I'm going to say, that is what I am doing. But then there's this time in your relationship where you bring your, I love the way we can reframe this, you bring your concerns to one another, right? You bring your concerns. There's a complaint. There is a confrontation. And husbands, you're being told, maybe you haven't been so wise at understanding as you thought you were. Or, or, or wives, I haven't been so honoring and respectful as I thought I was. What happens at that point? I'll tell you what happens in my heart. I want to say, but I've got a clear conscience. I think I'm doing a great job. It's, you maybe not see that I can do a, I'm doing a great job, but I'm doing a great job. And so, so what happens, there's a conflict, not about the conflict, but about something else entirely. Who is right? Who is wrong? Who has the most accurate interpretation of what's happening? Let me say this, husbands and wives. Do you know what's more important than winning an argument? Repenting. Loving and apologizing. When faith faced with your sin, maybe in ways you weren't even aware, just do the next right thing. See, that, that, that's what we learn from Abimelech. There, 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 there wasn't time to, to wallow in what's happened. It was time to, God, what are you telling me to do today? If you find yourself in a situation like Abimelech, faith for you might be, see, God, I, I don't know what, why this has happened. It doesn't seem fair. I don't know how I've gotten here, but God, what do you want me to do right now? What do you want me to do financially? What do you want me to do in my marriage? What do you want me to do right now in my parenting? God, I can't change the past, but what's the next right thing? We learn that from Abimelech. Let me say this in closing about this passage. We do see God's grace in a final, unexpected way in this passage in relationship to Abraham. See, a lot of times our conception of grace is, yes, God, God forgives us. God gets us back to ground zero so that we can start again. But that's not God's definition of grace. I want you to see God's particular grace to Abraham in terms of how he uses this broken, sinful man 
despite his sin. Look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. See, God doesn't just save Abraham. God gives Abraham favor. And I don't mean financial favor. Abraham didn't need the money, right? Abraham was a very rich man. The point of this passage is that God once again gives Abraham spiritual favor despite his sin, despite his failings. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. God doesn't just give Abraham favor. God gives Abraham a prophetic voice. He gives him a place to serve, a place to minister, a platform for ministry. And we look at all of that and we say, Pastor Paul, that just seems craziness. This sinful man, not just forgiven by God, but like set on a platform to minister and serve and be a prophet. And we say, that's outrageous. And when you, if you say that in your heart, that's outrageous, you finally understand grace. That is grace. And when we ask God to open our eyes to it, we will see it everywhere in our lives. We will, we, we will see that despite our sin, and sometimes in spite of it, God gives us grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. And for Abraham, this broken man, do you realize that God uses Abraham's brokenness to be a witness to his grace? See, we think sin disqualifies us, or sometimes we might use our sin to sort of excuse us not getting connected, not being involved. Pastor Paul, I, you know, I've struggled with this, and I don't think I have anything to add to anyone, and I can sort of linger back and not serve or not be invested, and what do I have to teach somebody? And it's all faux humility, right? But do you realize that you've been broken by God's grace to be a blessing to others? You've been broken to be a blessing. You've been broken in order to be a witness to God's grace in your life. See, that's, that's what tonight is all about. When we come together to, to pray as a church family, to cry out to God, we're saying, God, we're not special. We're just people saved by your grace. We're broken. We're not better than anyone. But we're praying that you would use our brokenness, our sin, to be a light to you, to be a blessing to others, to our neighbors, friends, coworkers, city. We're crying out to you to do for us what you did for Abraham. So if you're, this morning, whether you identify with Abraham or Abimelech or Sarah, understand that the main character in this story, the main character in your life, if you know Jesus Christ, is God and his grace given to you through Jesus. Let's pray.